Chapters 21 and 22 of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter 21 The Nest of Death. Our camels were trudging to a slow but steady measure on toward the north. We were making twenty-five to thirty miles a day as we approached a small monastery that lay to the left of our route. It was in the form of a square of large buildings surrounded by a high fence of thick poles. Each side had an opening in the middle, leading to the four entrances of the temple in the centre of the square. The temple was built with the red lacquered columns and the Chinese-style roofs and dominated the surrounding low dwellings of the lamas. On the opposite side of the road lay what appeared to be a Chinese fortress, but which was, in reality, a trading compound or dugun, which the Chinese always build in the form of a fortress with double walls a few feet apart, within which they place their houses and shops, and usually have twenty or thirty traders fully armed for any emergency. In case of need these duguns can be used as blockhouses, and are capable of withstanding long sieges. Between the dugun and the monastery, and nearer to the road, I made out the camp of some nomads. Their horses and cattle were nowhere to be seen. Evidently the Mongols had stopped here for some time, and had left the cattle in the mountains. Over several yurtas waved multicolored triangular flags, a sign of the presence of disease. Near some yurtas high poles were stuck into the ground with Mongol caps at their tops, which indicated that the host of the yurta had died. The packs of dogs wandering over the plain showed that the dead bodies lay somewhere near, either in the ravines or along the banks of the river. As we approached the camp, we heard from a distance the frantic beating of drums, the mournful sounds of the flute, and shrill, mad shouting. Our Mongol went forward to investigate for us, and reported that several Mongolian families had come here to the monastery to seek aid from the Hutuktu Jahansti, who was famed for his miracles of healing. The people were stricken with leprosy and black smallpox, and had come from long distances only to find that the Hutuktu was not at the monastery, but had gone to the living Buddha in Urga. Consequently they had been forced to invite the witch-doctors. The people were dying one after another. Just the day before they had cast on the plain the twenty-seventh man. Meanwhile, as we talked, the witch-doctor came out of one of the yurtas. He was an old man with a cataract on one eye, and with a face deeply scarred by smallpox. He was dressed in tatters, with various colored bits of cloth hanging down from his waist. He carried a drum and a flute. We could see froth on his blue lips and madness in his eyes. Suddenly he began to whirl round and dance with a thousand prancings of his long legs and writhings of his arms and shoulders still beating the drum and playing the flute, or crying and raging at intervals, ever accelerating his movements until at last, with pallid face and bloodshot eyes, he fell on the snow, where he continued to writhe, and gave out his incoherent cries. In this manner the doctor treated his patients, frightening with his madness the bad devils that carry disease. Another witch-doctor gave his patients dirty, muddy water, which I learned was the water from the bath of the very person of the living Buddha who had washed in it his divine body, born from the sacred flower of the lotus. Om, Om, 
both witches continuously screamed. While the doctors fought with the devils, the ill people were left to themselves. They lay in high fever under the heaps of sheepskins and overcoats, were delirious, raved and threw themselves about. By the braziers squatted adults and children who were still well, indifferently chatting, drinking tea and smoking. In all the yurtas I saw the diseased and the dead, and such misery and physical horrors as cannot be described. And I thought, O oh, great Genghis Khan, why did you with your keen understanding of the whole situation of Asia and Europe, you who devoted all your life to the glory of the name of the Mongols, why did you not give to your own people, who preserved their old morality, honesty, and peaceful customs, the enlightenment that would have saved them from such death? Your bones in the mausoleum at Karakoam, being destroyed by the centuries that pass over them, must cry out against the rapid disappearance of your formerly great people, who were feared by half the civilized world. Such thoughts filled my brain when I saw this camp of the dead to-morrow, and when I heard the groans, shoutings, and ravings of dying men, women, and children. Somewhere in the distance the dogs were howling mournfully, and monotonously the drum of the tired witch rolled. Forward! I could not witness longer this dark horror, which I had no means or force to eradicate. We quickly passed on from the ominous place. Nor could we shake the thought that some horrible invisible spirit was following us from this scene of terror. The devils of disease, the pictures of horror and misery, the souls of men who have been sacrificed on the altar of darkness of Mongolia, an inexplicable fear penetrated into our consciousness, from whose grasp we could not release ourselves. Only when we had turned from the road, passed over a timbered ridge into a bowl in the mountains, from which we could see neither Jahatsi Kure, the Dugan, nor the squirming grave of dying Mongols, could we breathe freely again. Presently we discovered a large lake. It was Tisingol. Near the shore stood a large Russian house, the telegraph station between Kosogol and Uliasitai. End of chapter 21 Chapter 22 Among the Murderers As we approached the telegraph station, we were met by a blonde young man who was in charge of the office, canine by name. With some little confusion, he offered us a place in his house for the night. When we entered the room, a tall, lanky man rose from the table and indecisively walked toward us, looking very attentively at us the while. "'Guests,' explained Canine, "'they are going to Cathil. Private persons, strangers, foreigners.' "'Ah!' drawled the stranger in a quiet, comprehending tone. While we were untying our girdles and with difficulty getting out of our great Mongolian coats— the tall man was animatedly whispering something to our host. As we approached the table to sit down and rest, I overheard him say, "'We are forced to postpone it,' and saw Canine simply nod in answer. Several other people were seated at the table, among them the assistant of Canine, a tall blond man with a white face, who talked like a gatling gun about everything imaginable. He was half crazy, and his semi-madness expressed itself when any loud talking, shouting, or sudden sharp report led him to repeat the words of the one to whom he was talking at the time, 
or to relate in a mechanical, hurried manner stories of what was happening around him just at this particular juncture. The wife of Canine, a pale, young, exhausted-looking woman with frightened eyes and a face distorted by fear, was also there, and near her a young girl of fifteen with cropped hair and dressed like a man, as well as the two small sons of Canine. We made acquaintance with all of them. The tall stranger called himself Gorokov, a Russian colonist from some Galtai, and presented the short-haired girl as his sister. Canine's wife looked at us with plainly discernible fear, and said nothing, evidently displeased over our being there. However, we had no choice, and consequently began drinking tea and eating our bread and cold meat. Canine told us that ever since the telegraph line had been destroyed, all his family and relatives had felt very keenly the poverty and hardship that naturally followed. The Bolsheviki did not send him any salary from Irkutsk, so that he was compelled to shift for himself as best he could. They cut and cured hay for sale to the Russian colonists, handled private messages and merchandise from Kathil to Uliasutai and Samgaltai, bought and sold cattle, hunted, and in this manner managed to exist. Gorokov announced that his commercial affairs compelled him to go to Kathil, and that he and his sister would be glad to join our caravan. He had a most unprepossessing, angry-looking face with colourless eyes that always avoided those of the person with whom he was speaking. During the conversation we asked Canine if there were Russian colonists nearby, to which he answered with knitted brow and a look of disgust on his face, "'There is one rich old man, Bobrov, who lives a verst away from our station, but I would not advise you to visit him. He is a miserly, inhospitable old fellow who does not like guests.' During these words of her husband, Madame Canine dropped her eyes and contracted her shoulders in something resembling a shudder. Gorokov and his sister smoked along indifferently. I very clearly remarked all this as well as the hostile tone of Canine, the confusion of his wife, and the artificial indifference of Gorokov, and I determined to see the old colonists given such a bad name by Canine. In Uliasutai I knew two Brobrovs. I said to Canine that I had been asked to hand a letter personally to Bobrov, and, after finishing my tea, put on my overcoat and went out. The house of Bobrov stood in a deep sink in the mountains, surrounded by a high fence over which the low roofs of the houses could be seen. A light shone through the window. I knocked at the gate. A furious barking of dogs answered me, and through the cracks of the fence I made out four huge black Mongol dogs, showing their teeth and growling as they rushed toward the gate. Inside the court someone opened the door and called out, "'Who is there?' I answered that I was travelling through from Uliasutai. The dogs were first caught and chained, and I was then admitted by a man who looked me over very carefully and inquiringly from head to foot. A revolver handle stuck out of his pocket. Satisfied with his observations, and learning that I knew his relatives, he warmly welcomed me to the house and presented me to his wife, a dignified old woman, and to his beautiful little adopted daughter, a girl of five years. She had been found on the plain beside the dead body of her mother, exhausted in her attempt to escape from the Bolsheviki in Siberia. Bobrov told me that the Russian detachment of Casagrande had succeeded in driving the red troops away from the Kosogol, 
and that we could consequently continue our trip to Cathil without danger. "'Why did you not stop with me, instead of with those brigands?' asked the old fellow. I began to question him, and received some very important news. It seemed that Canine was a Bolshevik, the agent of the Irkutsk Soviet, and stationed here for purposes of observation. However, now he was rendered harmless, because the road between him and Irkutsk was interrupted. Still, from Biisk in the Altai country had just come a very important commissar. "'Gorokov?' I asked. "'That's what he calls himself.' replied the old fellow. But I am also from Biisk, and I know everyone there. His real name is Puzikov, and the short-haired girl with him is his mistress. He is the commissar of the Cheka, and she is the agent of this establishment. Last August the two of them shot with their revolvers seventy bound officers from Kolchak's army. Villainous, cowardly murderers! Now they have come here for a reconnaissance." They wanted to stay in my house, but I knew them too well, and refused them place. "'And you do not fear him?' I asked, remembering the different words and glances of these people, as they sat at the table in the station. "'No,' answered the old man. "'I know how to defend myself and my family, and I have a protector, too. My son, such a shot, a rider and a fighter as does not exist in all Mongolia.' I am very sorry that you will not make the acquaintance of my boy. He has gone off to the herds, and will return only to-morrow evening. We took most cordial leave of each other, and I promised to stop with him on my return. "'Well, what yarns did Bobroff tell you about us?' was the question with which Canine and Gorokov met me when I came back to the station. "'Nothing about you,' I answered because he did not want even to speak with me when he found out that I was staying in your house. What is the trouble between you? I asked of them, expressing complete astonishment on my face. It's an old score, growled Gorokov. A malicious old churl, Canine added in agreement, the while the frightened, suffering-laden eyes of his wife again gave expression to terrifying horror, as if she momentarily expected a deadly blow. Gorokov began to pack his luggage in preparation for the journey with us the following morning. We prepared our simple beds in an adjoining room, and went to sleep. I whispered to my friend to keep his revolver handy for anything that might happen, but he only smiled as he dragged his revolver and his axe from his coat to place them under his pillow. "'This people at the outset seemed to me very suspicious,' he whispered. They are cooking up something crooked. Tomorrow I shall ride behind this Gorokov, and shall prepare for him a very faithful one of my bullets, a little dum-dum. The Mongols spent the night under their tent in the open court beside their camels, because they wanted to be near to feed them. About seven o'clock we started. My friend took up his post as rear guard to our caravan, keeping all the time behind Gorokov, who, with his sister, both armed from tip to toe, rode splendid mounts. "'How have you kept your horses in such fine condition coming all the way from Samgaltai?' I inquired, as I looked over their fine beasts. When he answered that these belonged to his host, I realized that Canine was not so poor as he made out, 
for any rich Mongol would have given him in exchange for one of these lovely animals enough sheep to have kept his household in mutton for a whole year. Soon we came to a large swamp, surrounded by dense brush, where I was much astonished by seeing literally hundreds of white kuropatka, or partridges. Out of the water rose a flock of duck with a mad rush as we hove in sight. Winter, cold driving wind, snow and wild ducks. The Mongol explained it to me thus. This swamp always remains warm and never freezes. The wild ducks live here the year round, and the Kuropatka too, finding fresh food in the soft warm earth. As I was speaking with the Mongol, I noticed over the swamp a tongue of reddish-yellow flame. It flashed and disappeared at once, but later, on the farther edge, two further tongues ran upward. I realized that here was the real will-o'-the-wisp, surrounded by so many thousands of legends, and explained so simply by chemistry as merely a flash of methane or swamp gas, generated by the putrefying of vegetable matter in the warm damp earth. Here dwell the demons of Adair, who are in perpetual war with those of Muren, explained the Mongol. Indeed, I thought, if in prosaic Europe in our days the inhabitants of our villages believe these flames to be some wild sorcery, then surely in the land of mystery they must be at least the evidences of war between the demons of two neighboring rivers. After passing this swamp, we made out far ahead of us a large monastery. Though this was some half-mile off the road, the Gorokovs said they would ride over it to make some purchases in the Chinese shops there. They quickly rode away, promising to overtake us shortly, but we did not see them again for a while. They slipped away without leaving any trail, but we met them later in very unexpected circumstances of fatal portent for them. On our part, we were highly satisfied that we were rid of them so soon, and after they were gone— I imparted to my friend the information gleaned from Bobroff the evening before. End of chapter.